welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Salas. And with me, as always, is my very talented friend, who's always just a little bit sweet and a little bit savory, the very talented mixtress, D.C. Gina. Hey, Louise. (laughs) Are you loving our location today? It's so beautiful. It is really cool. The lighting, like you said, you've not ever looked more lovely. I'm feeling good. And, and do you want to tell everyone where we are? We're at Boca Ria in, uh, in New York City. Yep. So we're hanging out and uh, doing a little tapa and looking at an amazing kitchen and in this room that looks like a, like a any grocery store if you were in Spain. It's kind of amazing. So, so don't steal anything because we want to be well. We want to come. We, we want, want them to welcome gonna, us back. Yeah. Thank you, Jan. We want to come back. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. So. Um, do you know where the first bakers, I mean, ever in history, do you have any idea in the world where it may have started? I'm going to, I'll take a guess. Egypt. And if you said that, you would be wrong, apparently. Oh. Because um, there's evidence that proves that the indigenous people of Australia, of Australia, yes, um, were using grindstones to turn seeds into flour over 30,000 years ago. Wow. And so Egypt, that would have been uh, another 12,000 years before they, they figured this out, before they were baking their very first loaf of bread. Yeah, I mean... 12,000 years. Hmm. Could you imagine how stale that bread would be at this point? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be a fossil at this point. I don't know. Um, but I'm still going to Egypt. I like them better. than They invented booze. <laughs> All right. Probably with the yeast, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of those who love to bake and all things chefing, making up words, um, brings me to today's designated drinker. That's very chefery of you. You like that chefery of me? Ish. Ish. Chefrish. Um, I'm right city for it. You can dish it. <laughs> and I'm sitting with the right two people. Um, so, let's welcome today's designated drinker. She's incredibly talented. She's the chef, the author, and the artist. That is Elizabeth Faulkner. Howdy. Hi. Hi. So amazing. I I know. I want to, first off, I just want to thank you for being here today. We know you're incredibly busy. She has a little time for us. Um, It's Yeah, but if Gina's making a cocktail, I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny how often I can get people on the hook for that. (laughs) They're like, Gina's making, talk to you. Gina's making, yes, I'll be there. Um, But you have such an impressive resume and uh, a really cool journey that I think a lot of people um, often, like, they see you on TV doing this really cool stuff, and everyone's like, how the hell does, how the hell do you end up there? And how do you go from, like, film school to finding your love and passion and following it to this amazing career that you had? How, how does one do that? I like that way you just said had, because... Um, yeah. I Have, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, but I like that, because um, because I feel like I've had lots of different careers, Honestly, um, I did go to film school because I grew up in a really artistic family. My dad's an abstract painter. My brothers are both, one's a filmmaker, one's a rock star, is a guitar player for Beck. Oh, wow. Um, and so having the arts all around me was just the way I grew up. And I feel like creativity is sort of one of my main drivers and also a gift and something that I want to give other people permission to, you know, rely on or lean on or... Um, Leverage. Utilize, yeah. yeah. Leverage. I mean, uh, using your creativity. Not. I think 
a lot of people suffer because they can't figure that out. They don't, they have this great love or this passion and really good at something, but it's what they do in their spare time. When right, there's some kind of disconnect that, there. Yeah, it should be, should is a big word, but if, if they could find a way to make it the thing, um, happiness. Well, it's, I, don't I don't know if it's like always finding the thing either, because I, I feel like creativity comes in different forms and, um, you know, like, I did study film, but when I moved to the Bay Area from Southern California, um, I started incorporating food stuff into my films because I was already starting to be influenced by the food revolution going on around me. And um, so in art, in my like final film in art school, I presented people with chocolate-covered sorbet bonbons to go with the film, and it just seemed appropriate. It was, it was part cool. of the... the it wasn't did you like make a, them? Yeah, of course like I did. Like part of the whole experience? It just was a very jazzy kind of situ- you know, environment, basically. And when I say I studied film, too, I studied more um, abstract, modern filmmaking rather than sort of Hollywood filmmaking. Yeah. Um, so I was doing more installation kind of stuff. So th- that's important to me because um, then I started working in restaurants, started just at a small little bistro. I didn't have cooking experience except for that I just loved to cook. And... Um, then I went and got into fine dining pretty quickly, worked for some great chefs. Is that what just kind of, you just naturally went in because you wanted to, you had a love for cooking that you found? Well, you have to go back into, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, um, and I started cooking in 1990, and um, a lot of people at that time were either coming out of CIA or some other culinary school, or they were just people like myself who had some kind of art background and found themselves in a kitchen because we needed to work. Oh. And, um, and because there was so much change and evolution going on in food stuff and agriculture, particularly in California, um, and sort of the East Coast comparing the West Coast and people traveling and writing about it and then cooking, bringing it back to their kitchens. So it was, it was just an evolving time, and you, how could you not get excited about it, you know? And then we sort of became evangelists of all of that movement, too. And um, But I was going to say, so, like, in this spread of sort of different careers, I got kind of being female, more thrown into pastry, and I was actually really good at it, noticeably, noticeably quickly. So I, I started um, focusing on that, even though I always loved to cook savory, and um, I never thought of myself as just a pastry chef, even when I was a pastry chef, <laughs> and, because I always would be like in, talking with the other cooks and, you know, yeah. working on stuff myself and catering on the sides and stuff, so um, when I opened up my own place seven years after working for other people... Um, you know, we did breads and we did some pizzas and some stuff. It was a small. My first bakery was focused on the idea that people that we were coming out of fine dining on the plate and making things in a case that people could take away and you know have different day parts and stuff yeah, like that. Cool. Um, so, and my creative artistic flair is showing up in these cakes like crazy because I'm making much more sculptural things rather than round little cakes with sprinkles on him and stuff like that you know it's like that's not my thing first competition when you had your your right you had your first competition and book came out here out of um citizen right or no did it my first um television thing yeah book and wasn't your first book out of citizen as well yeah yeah my first book was called demolition desserts Um, so if everyone understands that citizen came (laughs) right so yeah i mean linking my film sort of studying citizen came to the name of my pastry shop the citizen cake yeah. And um, it just worked really well, too, in San Francisco. Our sort of sub, you know, subtitle was A Cake for Every Citizen. Yeah. It had, and then we moved it over near City Hall, so that it was, like, just a great location. We became a full restaurant and bar. 
um, one year after moving it from uh, the small original bakery. And, um, and helped so the cocktail movement. We did. We had really cool... Everything yeah. had to be kind of inventive, and while it had, like, everything had roots in some kind of tradition and very much California-style food making, um, pulling from different... Our savory food pulled from different travels or different places I had gone to, or, you know, some of my cooks had studied, you know, had worked in other countries, so we would play with that stuff, both on the sweet and the savory side, and in our cocktails. And, um, yeah, and we just, it was like our thing to be very inventive about titles for cocktails and and dessert stuff, and and I had that restaurant for 10 years, and I like to remind people that I had that restaurant for 10 years, it was called Citizen Cake, and people used to say, oh, I thought, you know, I thought you just did cakes, and I'm like, well... I hate to say this, but the Cheesecake Factory doesn't just make cheesecake, right? <laughs> Even though that's a really different kind of restaurant. Um, but it's like, you know, I love the, the play on the words, but at some point, at some times in my life, I'm like, I wish I didn't call it Citizen Cake and it wasn't known as a restaurant and pastry shop because I hate just sort of being stereotyped as a pastry Just being shop. pigeonholed into that one space. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, when I started doing um, some food television, that all kind of happened in... Um, early 2000s like they had the Food Network Challenge shows where you used to have to make some kind of gargantuan pastry thing and carry it across the room for no reason except for oh, to make television I do remember that and they just everyone's like oh my god it's gonna fall yeah because it's always some precarious sugar thing balancing on you know some little thread of chocolate and it would like break away and you wouldn't know until they came back <laughs> yeah I did a couple of those and then I did um, I judged on the first season of Top Chef and did then, you drop anything ever? I like, no, I didn't. First of all, my sculptural stuff on those shows too was dramatically different than the other pastry chefs. So like, <laughs> you know, I just I've never been into like realism in pastry in general. I like this more abstract um, world of Gotham City meets some kind of geometric. You know, I have just all this sculptural background That's too. So, so cool. it just I, my stuff never really looked like um, caricatures. Yeah. So it wasn't Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> well, like, I had to do this haunted gingerbread one, and I, re- I remember, like, I knew the other pastry chefs would come into it doing little ghosts and goblins and, you know, yeah. gravestones made out of marzipan or whatever. And we decided that I, w- I was like, I'm going to do just a big cave, like, with different parts that you have to st- stick your hand or look on into. Like, everything's going to happen on the inside rather than the outside. And so I made this very Frank Gehry sort of big shards of gingerbread just kind of glued and made this giant it looked like some kind of Frank Gehry you know, <laughs> awesome. and then um, you know put I used marzipan I used chocolate and stuff but I would you know and I used my airbrush and graffitied things on the outside and then put like a scary cast chocolate mask inside with a strobe light behind it that was actually slimed with xanthan gum cherry gel and <laughs> just like and it was actually scary like yeah. people were like I don't know what's happening over there and I pretty much got edited out of it because they were like we don't even know what that is <laughs> we don't even know what she's doing but she looks like she's having a good time <laughs> they, they show her doing it they never show the end product <laughs> and then like I remember we made this I made this chocolate sphere filled with like caro red colored corn syrup I probably put flavor in it too and then pierced it like right before the like the ju- the judging time. Yeah. So over while they were going to each little thing and talking about it, 
you know, they went by the pirate ship and they went by the haunted house <laughs> that was crooked. Yeah. And then um, they came by mine and then it just started bleeding out red out of the bottom of the cave. <laughs> it's just like, it was like more Jack Nicholson. And <laughs> shiny. Red I love it. I already love it. Red rum. Perfect. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, but I, and I love doing that. And then I did those, um, a couple of Top Chef guest judging, you know, in the early parts of those and. Top Chef Masters, and then um, then I got asked to be on Next Iron Chef, and, then I, was, awesome. and then I really had to prove myself as a savory chef on television because here I was already being stereotyped as a as a pastry chef only on on Food Network in general, yeah. and um, you know, and the time I was judging Top Chef, it was always like you know, oh, the, she's a dessert chef, you know, and we're gonna she's gonna judge dessert, so. Which is fair. I mean, I'm, I'm a good critic of dessert stuff, too, but pretty much everything. I have to be a judge of a cassoulet war coming up, so I'm very excited That's about fun. that. <laughs> I love that. Are you kidding? Can um, I need your help? Can I hold your bag? <laughs> <laughs> Judging cassoulet is no joke, though. I can't even imagine the layers of that and, like, the cooking process. I mean, cassoulet can be dry and then not dry and then, see, I mean, forget it. Plus, it's like, does everybody know what cassoulet is? That's what was going to be my next question, as soon as you stop geeking out about that. Specialty from the Gascon region. It's perfect for wintertime in New York City or anywhere where it's cold, gray. Yeah, where the North Pole is shifting to. (laughs) Um, But it's made out of these tarbe beans and lots of um, duck confit and pork sausages and... Oh, so wide affair. Just really hearty <laughs> and really delicious, but like, there's quite a few to judge. So. Wow. Thank goodness I'm riding a for Chef Cycle this year and having to train right now. <laughs> <laughs> so Burn off some of the tell, So tell everybody. So one thing that I love about and I, I and I say my friend Elizabeth is that she's always huge philanthropist. Like whatever she does, like she puts her whole heart into it. And uh, t- she's doing a ride for Share Strength and No Kid Hungry, and. And I've watched you on Instagram. She's been training to ride 300 miles in less than three days, right? Three days. So it's three centuries back to back. Yeah. Um, first, that's amazing, first of all. But, like, how do you feel? You're ready to do this? How do you train for 300 miles? Do you well, ride 150 a day? I mean, what do you do? I know, right? Um, this is not anything I've done before, except for two years ago I ran the New York Marathon. And I've been running a lot of half marathons for the last few years. And I've, I'm, I'm a chef who's always played sports. Like, I played soccer, like, amateur soccer, but serious yeah. for um, not just, like, you know, when I was a kid and in college, but until I was 38. So even while I was managing and running my restaurant stuff, I would make time to run because you can't you play can't soccer, soccer without, you know, yeah. running on a regular basis. And um, I finally, and I played in lots of tournaments. I played in different countries. Oh, that's totally cool. Fun. Yeah. Played in the gay games a couple times. Total, just a blast. Amsterdam, 98, and Sydney in 2002. Oh, that sounds awesome. And, uh, yeah, and then... That sounds like a whole... This last year... <laughs> I know. But it's so, well, it's like the Olympics meets the best gay pride party ever. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. like, that's like amazing another episode. <laughs> and last year I actually ran... I hadn't play, participated in the gay games for a long time, but I ran because it was in Paris, and some friends of mine and I were like, oh, let's go run a half marathon in Paris. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I did that. You know, as one does. And so after running three half marathons last year, my knees hurting a little bit, 
And um, I went to a doctor, and he's like, well, maybe not as much running. So I was like, fine, I'll just sign up for the chef cycle because I've always wanted to do that. Sit and I can, it's easy, right? <laughs> I can train for that now. <laughs> well, at least it's low impact. Yeah, well, it's yeah. true because now I've been riding. Um, I usually do, like, somewhere between 20 to 40 miles not every single day, but like I'm running, I'm riding like 20, 25, 30 miles, three days a week. And then I'm trying to do that sort of longer one, but it's more about, and I'm doing it on stationary bike because it's New York winter time. Yeah. And, um, I'm a fair weather rider myself. Right. Cause I, yeah. I, when I live in, live in, uh, the DC area, my ride in my past life was 20 miles, 10 there, 10 back. So I could do that during the week and it was quicker than, than driving. Um, sure. and then on the weekends you could do 50, but I don't, at the end of that 50 miles, I'm like, like grumpy and like not another fucking hill, you know, like I, I don't know that I could do that hundred. Well, the thing that's good about training on, I mean, there's two things going on here. Yes. I need to be on the, on a real bike outside because of the elements and yeah, you know, clipping into a bike is like something I'm still kind of like, Oh, I haven't really done a lot of that. Wait, Um, you're going to do 300 miles and the clipping in is new? Well, I mean, I do it on a stationary yeah. bike. I'm just saying I don't ride... I don't <sighs> really ride a bike in New York. I have a bike that I just got, and it's in L.A. at my parent, one of my parents' house. And um, and I have to go out there and, you know... Where's your ride? So each ride is different. Where's your ride going to be? This is going to be in Santa Rosa. You're going to, oh, so you're going to California to ride? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that mostly flat? No, it's hilly. Woo! But I was going to say the good thing about training on a stationary bike and then doing a lot of strength training and mobility and stuff is that... Because I rode, you know, 20 miles the first time I rode my brand new bike. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is a lot easier than riding in a stationary bike because you never stop pedaling on a stationary bike. You don't, oh, like, yeah, fly I, down a hill. Yeah, I guess yeah. not for real. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, like, turn it down and, like, oh. get your, let your legs flush out, whatever. But you're still, like, pedaling always. Absolutely. You're right. You're right. And you so, just... and then you know, I have apps and I have, you know, different classes and trainers and you know, mixing it up at different clubs and all that stuff oh. to just keep me from being bored. I'm so sure you'll be fine. It's just the way I cycle. Like, I just thinking to do that, like, what... I haven't been cycling for a while, unfortunately, but to think about the miles I would ride and always being on the bike, and then I don't think I could... I know that I couldn't do the 300 miles even when I was cycling the most, and then you're like, I haven't clipped in that much. I'm just like, oh, my God, she is, like... A beast. <laughs> in a good way. And I'm like, everything. she's just going to go out and do it. I'm oh, like, and I was thinking, like, next time I'm in Southern California, I'm going to just put the bike on my mom's front yard and put some knee pads and shoulder pads on and just fall over a million <laughs> times. <laughs> a lot. You do, you do have to get over I, that. Yeah. You have to get over the fall. I, I think I had two good falls before I really mastered not falling anymore. Hold on. Well, I was just talking to, um, you know, I used to work for Tracy Desjardins a long time ago, and she did it once with Mary Sue Milliken, and Tracy's like, the fact is you're just going to fall. You are going to fall. Yeah. Because you forget. Or, yeah. you, or you have that one moment where you have to stop immediately, and you don't clip like, out fast enough. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or you, or, you just, or you're, you're in a curve that I had, I got hit by a, I got clipped by a by a trolley it's like a bus basically a trolley in Hawaii in Honolulu and uh, and they clip the back end of my tire and my as I'm going down I can see a bumper of a car coming and they stopped fortunately I oh I that was another cussing moment and I was bleeding from like the shin all the way up to because it's nice road uh, like strawberry and I yeah and then I had to ride back like 
15 miles. Oh, I was not a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never riding this goddamn thing again. <laughs> but I think the cool thing about Chef Cycle, though, is that, you know, you're raising a lot of money. Yeah, yeah how can we get this awesome. nasty? awesome. Sorry. Tell us, how, yeah, tell us how to, to get people to contribute. Yeah, you can just go on the um, Chef Cycle website and, and look up a rider. And uh, I'm in there. Yeah. And um, I'm actually riding with a bunch of other female chefs who've not Ridden. participated in this before. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So everybody, cool. a lot of first timers. Tanya Holland. Um, let's see, my friend um, Catherine Alder. She's in uh, just outside of Wichita, Kansas. She has a really cool farm and restaurant. Oh, cool. Farm literal farm to table restaurant. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, oh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people. Okay. Right. So, yes. so we can so we can put this on our on yeah, the website. So what, so what you, we'll do is we'll just make sure that if all you just go is to designateddrinker.show, which everyone knows, um, and then we'll make sure that all of that information, all the links are there so that we, if they want to support you or learn more about it or how they can participate yeah, every, in any every way. Yeah, every dollar helps. It's yeah. not like you have to, it could be anything. Um, a, a dollar, like, feeds ten kids. It's and, amazing. you know, people don't think that there's a lot of hunger in this country, but there is. Yeah. Everywhere. And, everywhere yeah. yeah all right hold on so, so let's make a difference. i'm gonna make a difference in your day right now because you do so much good i'm gonna make a cocktail okay <laughs> and we are then going to get into um elizabeth the chef and talk about how you made the big leap and moved to the east coast oh this yeah is crazy right not so, crazy i mean awesome i mean i'm happy to have crazy you cool on the side on the side of the of the u.s although you spend most of your time in California anyway. <laughs> so I really split up my time. Nice. So you're bi-coastal. Um, so what you got today, Gina? So we have, uh, so uh, Chef wanted a, a drink that was definitely more bourbon-focused, whiskey-focused, because it's time of year. So, of course, we're going to use a little bit of uh, Michter's uh, American Rye, which I really like. It's really nice and staunchy, um, which is great. It's, you know, it's chilly. It's, it's, it's perfect. Um, then we in, in here we have um, three ounce, uh, three dashes of Angostura bitters, and then we're going to use uh, my friend's bitters, uh, Jack's bitters that we got in Philadelphia, which I love, mm. for two more dashes. And then in there we're going to put, um, I made a fermented uh, wild berry shrub uh, that I did over time from June of last year. Um, and this one is actually a salt-basted shrub, so it's not, it's a little bit of vinegar, a lot more salt. A lot more time to come out, and then we press it, and it just makes this really, like, um, uh, salted berry-esque, if you will, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and no and no sugar in the shrub, so it's really not really a shrub. I call it more ferment, so it really just drives the, the sugar out of the fruit, so you're not adding any, um, you know, more sugar to, or sweetness to it. Nice. Wonderful. All right. So thought out for for my friend here. I'm going to use this ice, so, um, It sounds like it has electrolytes in it. It, do, it does. It's healthy. <laughs> don't, don't you know all my, all my cocktailing is healthy, right? So we're going to put some ice in there, and then we're going to give it... Um, you, everyone knows if you're making cocktails with us over the last uh, two years, that you're going to do 30 rotations on it. And normally we would put this in a stirring glass, but we are in the uh, PDR today of Bocaria, so... Um, I don't have every single thing that I would like, so we'll go with it. But if you're at home, I would do a stirring glass. And then we're going to finish it off with just a little orange peel. Remind us again, Gina, why only 30 rotations? Um, for me, that's just about like when you get the perfect chill from room temperature to ice. But some people, if you're a slow turner, you need to go a little bit more. If you're a fast turner, it's a little bit less. But the sweet spot's right around 30, and like 
we took this class a long time ago um japanese um cocktail makers and if you know anything about the japanese style it's all about the presentation and the, pre the precision of it more than it is about your funky ingredients or putting anything else in there so after you've been browbeat enough and told <laughs> that my stirring sucks you really get really good at it <laughs> so you get super quiet start to quiet you're counting in your head even though i'm talking to you i'm still counting so i know that i'm at 21 even though i'm like <laughs> keep going um it's nice a little diluted it's a little warm here so we're probably good wearing it today um I believe that our orange today is some version of a, of a tangelo, but I'm not really sure, but it's got a really nice rind on it, so we're gonna go with it and see how this citrus works in there. You know, an old-fashioned or an old-fashioned type drink, you know, as long as you have a really nice citrus and you use about a quarter, a quarter size or a little bit more, depending on what kind of citrus it is, um, you know, it, that's just it. You can always change it around as long as it does its thing. So a quarter round, I say quarter round, but this is like a tangelo, like I said, this is not a navel orange, so a little bit more, so it's like a quarter plus a hair. <laughs> we'll have to take a picture and show you, I don't know how to, how to describe it's it. It's like a quarter plus a nickel? That's really good. Happy? Um, yeah. It's really, I love how it's not syrupy. It's like, it's, it's got the sweetness, but it's not like sweet, you know? Yeah. And it's, it feels light. I say it's not heavy. For some, for a, something that's like, you know, a darker juice base and a brown liquor it's like not so I'll tell you this you know I always say that there's some people that make me a little intimidated to make cocktails for Elizabeth's a hundred percent one of those people because I knew if I came in something strongly sugary or sugar based or something that is not like in her wheel like what she likes that it would be like oh it's good <laughs> and she would be polite and she wouldn't drink it she's drinking it so I know that we're, we're on the right track we're on the I have right to be path. careful because I still have to ride hours yeah. today on that stationary bike. <laughs> That's one thing when we lived in Europe, it's crazy. You go on these long, like, 60-mile bike rides, and you go from town to town, and you drink. What's wrong with that? That's because a good, it's a good way to sweat it out. <laughs> <laughs> it is what you're supposed to do when you're in Europe. Well, it's just like, when it, like how far do you? I, I don't know if I'm going to get back. <laughs> I mean, All right, so you're in, you're in California. You founded, along with a bunch of other women, WCR. I didn't found WCR. You are but I was, brought into it. Yeah, I mean, I, let's be clear. I worked for one of the chefs who was a founder, um, Elka Which Gilmore. Women chefs and restaurants, right? Re women chefs and restaurateurs. Restaurateurs. And um, so we had um, Barbara Tropp and Joyce Goldstein were two of the core founders, um, and Lydia Bastianich and Ann Rosenzweig, and just Mary Sue Milliken was one of those people. Um, Barbara Lazaroff there were like eight women wow. that were founders of it and um, I w we had this conference at our uh, hotel that I worked at where this restaurant was that I was at um, and all those women came in and made a dinner and I you know like a young cook was completely starstruck by everybody and of course this was like before all this television stuff but I know you know it's like we follow chefs and of magazines course. and books and stuff yeah. and um, I was just so excited to see all these people and not unlike you with making cocktails I had to make um, scones and breakfast stuff for all the chefs for like the night after the party yeah. and I oh. knew everybody was going to be hungover so <laughs> I've made like you know passion fruit sorbet and blood orange sorbet and um, I remember making huckleberry Meyer lemon scones and I remember Gail Gand Emily Lucchetti 
and Nancy Silverton were all there, and I was just like, oh, these have to be perfect. <laughs> and then when um, I think Emily and Gail both were like, these are really good, and I was like, oh, I made it. <laughs> I can continue. Um, but that just was like the beginning of um, so many years I've been involved with WCR. And, so you know, the organization's... It's been, just, here for, it's, been, it's been here for 28 years. I think this is our 28th year. Um, so, like, I was, you know, a young cook who was brought into the fold early on. I got an award from WCR, like, 10 years later. And then I got on the board um, in, like, 2009. Uh, and I, I was the president, actually, in 2014, 2015. I let... I, there's... You, have only so many yep. years you can be on a board. Yep. So I, I took a year off, but then I kind of got brought back in, and now I'm the president again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. And it's actually a really good time for WCR because we've been, we were set up as a trade organization. So in, in tax size, it's a 501c6. Mm-hmm. And there are limitations with 501c6. So we've been, for the last several years, working hard on um, turning ourselves into a 501c3. Which is great because I think we can have do a lot more and have a lot more impact, um, and we're a very healthy organization now, and it's a very important time Absolutely. for to hear all these women's voices. Where I feel like we've been talking all along over here, and people are like, "Where are the female chefs?" I'm like, "Stop it! Everybody's we're right here." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it's like we have, um, you know, opened so, up a space for more, more women to stand out. And space. so, what, what did, what's Don't the be so modest? <laughs> Okay. What's the um, what's the main purpose of the organization? It's really about connecting um, and put you know pushing, supporting um, education for women in this all around this business, not just chefs, and, but you know the scholarship program. I did the scholarship program. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So the scholarship program is like you have a mentor, and then they'll give up like a certain amount of scholarship, and you like have to say why you deserve to be like get to go out to like. Uh, California, or you get to go to, I don't know, France, or wherever it is, to learn about whatever, like, that part of the trade. For me, it was winemaking. I got to go to, I got to go to California, oh, right? Cool. But you have to, like, really write in why you get to do it, and it's not one submission. They get a lot of submissions. Oh, sure. And then you go, and, like, and don't be fooled, folks. When you go on the other <laughs> side, no one is treating you like you don't work there. Because <laughs> you definitely work there for that week, or t- two days, or however long your scholarship's for. But you... Really, you know, you those doors don't open like that. No one just invites you in and says, hey, come make wine with us. You know what yeah. I mean? You, you have to, like, these women have made it so you have a place to get into when no one was taking you. I can't tell you how many times I applied for different scholarships with, like, winemakers or um, cocktails or amaras or whatever I want to go. And I always get beat at, like, now is it because I was a woman? I don't know. Maybe it was my... But it always seemed that the same group of men got to go always. And I was always like, man, I get to go on that trip again. Oh, I want to go on that trip. I want to go on that trip. I want to go on that trip. And it wasn't until um, I was brought into WCR, and that was, uh, I would say 2009 is when I first went to my first conference. Like, really went to, and I didn't, didn't just do something local in D.C. And, you know, all of a sudden there's all these people that wanted you to do more stuff with that. Yeah. And to, and to create a space where you wanted to be wanted in that time... It's amazing. I was very young, and like, it was very discouraged. You know, like it was kind of. It was always like, all oh, the guys are always gonna do. Oh, let let him handle the dinner, Gina. Don't tell anybody you're making the cocktail. You know, I mean, like. And now it's like 
him, him. Yeah. You know, <laughs> now you just are. You are just, you just are. And I love the label. You're becoming labelless because of the programs like WCR. Because now it's, you just got to be really good at your craft. Yeah. There's no more to deal with. Are you a boy or are you a girl? Are you just really good? Yeah. Then, then you're going to get to go where you want to go. But it takes that kind of pressure that you, and safety, and there's, you know, a voice with so many. And I think, I thank you for doing that. And, and don't be so humble about it because... Well, I'm not really being humble about it. I <laughs> yeah. think women are better tastemakers in general. <laughs> <laughs> well, we see more color. That's a proven fact. Maybe we have more taste buds. Hmm. Yeah, we, we definitely, definitely have different kinds of taste buds. Yeah, we see more color than men. It's a proven fact. So when my husband says it's blue, I'm like, no, it's not. It's teal. It's blue. No, you're wrong. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. You can't even step up to this one. <laughs> I'm just really excited for uh, WCR to be in this space right now, where it's we have a really strong board, a really a bunch of great new chefs um, on board. Tiffany Faison and Karen Akunowicz from Boston. Um, Ellie Simone just a really great diverse group of people um, my friend Serbi Sani she's from here um, and then I mean it's just we're in a really good place and we're going to do I mean our plan right now is to do more um, sort of bigger one day regional events in different places because the hard part about doing a one time one year once a year conference is it only really touches a few people. Yeah, it's and people who can make it happen during that one time. Or, yeah, you know. and it's great. It, I mean, no joke, it's really fun. It's a, always a great event, great time. Um, lots of food and drink. Okay. I mean, we are going to New Orleans, to be fair, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> next year, so it's going to be about good food and good drink. <laughs> Just I'll be making sure that I'm ready for that. I can do that. Um, My kids are old enough now. Stay home with daddy. <laughs> but I think we have other ways to communicate with um, people and connect people. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, m- more in digital platforms and stuff like that. We we might know somebody who has a podcast that would be happy to support. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Have more, yeah. Have more voices on. Absolutely. Yeah. No, Love I, that. I think it just, it, it, it's that tide rises raises all boats or whatever and then the other one is it takes a village I think it really really does I think in advertising we've talked about this there's a lot of similarities in the in the boys club in in my profession growing up coming up that you have similarly in in the food and beverage industry and I think I think it's not I think it's probably true in most industries that women have that hard time of just fighting for the space Um, and I think we're all getting there slowly but it takes organizations and efforts like yours you know, that might to be really why help push it and keep it moving and keep it moving forward. And, and it's not a give. It's a it's it's what should be. It's not like give me a space. It's that we earn that space. Well, or just clear your own space. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Not, not wait for it. Yeah. Um, I was going to say partnerships that... partnerships like you offer, though, and hands up and opening space up, allow people to do that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I mean, that really, that kind of thing... It does take an open hand and a help and, and a little bit of an encouragement. Sorry. Yeah. Please. It, it's nice to have encouragement. It's not always going to be there for people. And yeah. you've got to just make it happen. And because that's when, you know, you asked me earlier about my baking past. Um, I still love to bake, but I love to cook everything. I'm more happy actually cooking savory things. I love actually cooking outdoor. I love using wood fire. Um, 
I, part of me loves the science of pastry confectionery making stuff too but I'm m- much happier getting my hands into um, I don't know I like what I really like is to push people in what their perception of what we're supposed to be eating or what what the way something is supposed to be is that's interesting and um, and I I was gonna say like I hate being you know pigeonholed as a pastry chef and I think that the harder part about carving out my own niche in this has been like first of all I'm a woman second of all I'm a pastry chef so that's a second class citizen in the kitchen um, and so I and I always thought that's not that's not true that's not that's not me I'm not going to just accept that I'm going to I'm going to have to I don't know wear a bigger colored rainbow rainbow flag for all of the things I want and I'm queer so there's that <laughs> so it just I feel like um you know, I've had to, I sometimes have to kind of force my um, my particular style sure. or aesthetic or whatever drive is uh, about food making, and try to do it in a in a nice way. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Do you find this is a creative question when you bake because it's and this is my like little bit of information right like or understanding it's more measured more calculated it feels like or when I'm baking a cake I know everything's got to be this level and this measurement and it's very linear maybe and and cooking is can be different do you find that it's different I don't really think it's that different honestly I think it's what you're comfortable with yeah so um there is a science in cooking too you don't just like sure (laughs) you know cook a piece of meat and season it afterwards um and expect it to taste the same and the, the science of baking stuff is, um, you can play with it still. Yeah. There, there are, you know, some things that you kind of have to adhere to. If the cake is, like, exploding, it means there's probably too much leavening in it. Um, but it's not that complex. You if should you do just... that over an open fly- fire. <laughs> in New Orleans, exploding open fire cake. I'm into that. No, but I have to tell you about this cake I made for my birthday the other day. Um, I saw it Happy belated birthday. birthday. Somebody cheers. had... Sorry. Cheers. Somebody had, um, cheers. Somebody had, um, mentioned to me about, I've been so into, you know, um, this conversation about all of our food waste and, um, utilizing everything. And, um, somebody had mentioned that somebody had written a recipe with banana peels as the cake in the instead of bananas oh and I was like what I've always thought that banana peels were like something you would absolutely not eat how disgusting they've been traveling all this you know whatever and um so I was like I watched something on like food 52 and I was like that's amazing and she's and it looked like a great cake and I was like well I'm gonna have to try that because I mean how how cool and um you basically just chop up ripe banana peels like brown and boil them. Or yellow. I were almost almost brown. Right. Spot, oh, really right. dark spotty brown. Okay. Okay. And then I um, simmered them in some water, drained that off because it said to reserve some of the water. I'm like, I'm sorry, but it, no, that's been transported. Like that's been the package for it. So I'm going <laughs> to just throw that water away, rinse it again, and then just use a little bit of fresh water to um, puree it. And then I actually, um, I didn't really adhere to the recipe because I. That's, that's a good example of like why I don't. I was like, this actually is gonna. I know it's gonna need more. Um, I used yogurt instead of buttermilk, and I probably doubled it. 
And um, see, that's the difference between you and I. I wouldn't know to do that. I'd be like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know it's going to be a different texture, but I'm kind of, you know, I I've just done things just so many exactly. times. I know, like you're the pro, and I'm going to be kind of cool. Amateur. And then I also folded in um, some sliced banana and then baked it in a little loaf pan. Super moist. Um, very banana-y. <laughs> and then I also took the rest of the inside of the banana and made like a banana's foster um, oh, caramel nice. thing and yeah. um, thickened it with a little bit of a couple of starches and spread that in between and then made like a dark char- dark, dark chocolate carob ganache. And it was uh-huh. it was so good. I was worried it was going to be like a little bouncy because the peel is yeah. Probably got a lot of starch and pectin in it, and um, and I was like, I bet it's like going to be kind of chewy, but not a maybe not an unpleasant thing. Yeah, it ended up being like tasting like a whole banana. I mean, it was just delicious. Huh. So I saw it on your Instagram. It was amazing looking. I'm like, are you kidding me? Was and like, everybody was like, huh, banana peel. You know, like that's everybody's like, I don't know. And then everybody's like, this is really good. Yeah, <laughs> I love that idea. I also love that idea though. Like you know, people do that. You know, the whole fruit, everything. I, focusing on food waste, I think it's so important. And it's crazy to me that, like, my great-grandmother and grandmother, right? My great-grandma lived to be 96. She was so frugal when it came to food. Like, what, with, like, rinds. Like, my, they, they used to make a sauce with all the um, Parmesan cheese yeah. uh, rinds, right? Oh, yeah. And, like, never threw anything out. Like, never threw anything out. Like, my grandmother used every single thing. Or she put in the compost. This is my grandmother. You know, she was old. So my grandmother had old school ways. They came from Italy, super poor, came to the United States, lived here. You know, maybe I would say that they were middle class at some point, but, but never more than that, right? That would have been the Depression. Era, yeah, but, though, my, yeah? but she was a young girl during the Depression here in this country, so even got even tighter. My grandmother never, to the day she died, I said she lived to be 96, was ever a person to throw it out. We never threw it out. She taught us, use this, save the bread, make your own breadcrumbs. This is how you season them use the parsley stems we did all this kind of stuff and like I love now the bartenders are like oh you know you can use the beet tops or something I'm like yeah I know I mean that's a, what you're saying is true the the bar is one of the best places for a lot of scrap stuff yes. I mean like, like the pineapple rind right you yes. guys are using that and everything. making all kinds of stuff and um, everything I was just reading about how in some countries in the Middle East they take date pits and, gr- and mill those and make a beverage and I was like, I love dates. So I'm like, that ah. has got to be delicious. Why have I never even thought about using the date pits for anything? I, I don't know. I mean, there's so m- I always think there's always arsenic in the pits, and only because of um, apricots, right? And in my mind, everything has arsenic in it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Casey Apple Seeds definitely has arsenic in it. <laughs> I'm not even sure if you can eat. I'm pretty sure you can eat them. But like, I'm like... Yeah, like that. the amount you have to have is I get, I get so <laughs> nervous. Like tonka beans, you know, yeah. tonka beans are um, something that they use in South America. I learned about them in Venezuela, um, and they, it's an old, old um, aromatic for chocolate. Yeah, yeah. and tonka bean ta- and you know you can find bonbons today with tonka bean caramel. Pastry chefs, <laughs> high, you know, high end places use tonka bean. Tastes like the combination of bitter almond and like a vanillin kind of huh. flavor. It's delicious though, and people and it used to be um, you couldn't bring it into this country because of arsenic levels. But the amount that you have to consume is like a 
shocking <laughs> amount, like 40,000 pits. I mean, like, okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Nobody can afford that. Concubines uh, <laughs> are amazing. I, I loved, I, I, a chef of mine, a chef that I worked with, uh, P.S. Evans, used to use those a lot. And they were super amazing, but he used them on meat. He used mm, to use yeah. them to, like, um, coat his uh, steak. So, wow, yeah. Yeah, like grind them and do like peppercorns and and tacobine. And tacobine, yeah. Yeah, and then like just like caramel coffee, like on glaze and over the top and delicious. And There's just so many cool ingredients out there, you know? Yeah, people are trying to fight against it though. You notice a couple of articles coming up recently, right? Where they're like, you know, bar- bartender safety, like don't use this in your, in your beverages. Like, and I'm like, I agree. You should definitely know what you're putting in your beverages. I definitely agree that if you're going to put charcoal in a drink, know that you should only have this much charcoal right but but also know that charcoal rose water and grapefruit pretty delicious mm. so I agree on food safety and then like using stuff but food waste you know it's incredible and also cutting out one so people that eat meat right if you cut one meal a day like that's the other thing right one meal a day and you make it vegetarian that like legitimately you'll save the planet like the longevity of the lifetime I believe it's like each person if you cut one meal for the rest of your life or and your life spans 25 years you save the planet something like, I want to say it's like 50 more years of planetary life. Well, plus you do so much better for your body. Oh, no. I'm talking about, like, if you just one of those people that just has to have a reason to do it because you're not good enough for a reason, Yeah. this is just something that yeah. kind of drives it home. Listen, this is really fun. I had to, um, I just shot, um, like, a pilot episode for um, a series that I'm working on with my brother, who's the filmmaker, who lives here. And um, we went to... Uh, Bugs Giving, and I learned about at Brooklyn Bug, Bug Festival. So I learned about entomophagy and eating insects. And um, wow, that was an eye opener too. Because you know I'm pretty much like everybody else in the West. I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen for me. <laughs> and um, but then I started learning about um, cricket farming and the the impact that it has for one to consume something like cricket powder and things is unbelievable because there's no first of all they don't take nearly as much water as any kind of livestock they um, have three times as much protein so it's not like you have to eat eight ounces of crickets to equal eight ounces of steak Um, it's a third you know two thirds less so um, that's significant and we're not talking about like just our perception of like protein is so warped in this country like the way we talk about you have you know, I'm with trainers and stuff all the time, too, that want to eat protein. Where's the meat? And I'm like, you know, but protein does exist in lots of other things. We know that. And um, and you can't just eat, cannot just eat livestock all the time, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's that's actually really unhealthy. So um, looking at all different versions of protein and the impact that they have on the planet. I mean, crickets have a really strong... Are you eating crickets now? Like, like I have cricket flour. You do? Yeah. <laughs> There's no taste to it. And it so and what do you do with like, it? I love grasshoppers. They're quite tasty in Mexico. I mean, and yeah. Escamoles or the ant larvae. I was going to say, I've had the ant larvae. Uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've eaten that. It's just that we don't... I didn't know what I was eating at first. I, I feel like we have just... chips. Yeah, I feel like we have just had very strong industrialized pesticide as a movement in this country for over 100 years. And that's the problem. Because we've... Our, psychology here is to get rid of all of them right right they're bad well i don't know why but they're not because they're actually not all bad yeah um i don't mean just well, to I eat, think, but I they, think they the do good thing things is, in the world i think it's and, because it's hard to get rid of one but not all 
opinion. Like, we want to get rid of certain ones, but then when we do that, we get rid of all of them. But, like, and we're 80% the problem of the rest of, of the world eats insects. Yeah. And the FDA does allow a certain amount of insects in our food, just so you know. Oh, yeah. And all the candies that everybody loves have shellac, confectioner's glaze shellac on it, and that's made from a beetle, um, some kind of excretion. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I love so. Do they just have a bunch of... Are they just so, squeezing so a little baby? So when I need more truffles or bon Yeah, perfect. I'm like, oh, it's actually... It's protein. So they just squeeze in these little beetles? <laughs> yeah, how do they make that? little beetle factor. See, now? I don't know. It's like some secretion from the very specific female species of beetle. Who was the first one that said... It makes that shiny... Yeah, no, exactly what you're talking about. Is it... Like, who was the first person to say, you know what, we're going to use this beetle extraction. Everybody's... Like, but everything crazy. is getting used in different ways around yeah. the planet. Yeah. It's just learning just, about it everywhere else, you That's know? really cool. I just, like, the first person decided, I'm going mean, to put I love the, the people, candy. I love that people finally realize that lemons can clean an oven. I mean, that took a long time for people to get onto that. Yeah. But it works, right? Like, right. so, like, we save all of our old lemons, and my husband was like, what are you going to do with these? I'm like, how do we clean the oven? He goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, I clean the oven with lemon, and he goes, that's bizarre. And I do. I take the old lemons, and I put it on the oven, I let it sit, turn it on, put this up cleaner on, comes in, old thing comes off, my whole lemon, yeah, it's refreshing. It's not, like, going to kill you from the yes. toxic fumes. Yeah. And it's perfect, and my sister-in-law was like, oh, I found this thing with cleaning ovens. I'm like, oh, did you? And then she sent it to me, and I was like, man, I'm doing that forever. My grandma, I'm telling you, my grandmother was so frugal. Vinegar, that water, all newspapers. Yeah, and that's why she lived to be ninety-six. She wasn't filled with toxic stuff. She also never. You know what? My grandma barely ate meat, and she didn't. Not because she didn't like it, or she didn't. It wasn't a part of her diet. She just. That's how they always ate one meal ish a week. Had meat. We ate a lot of eggplant. Um, mm. A lot. Of, I mean, so much eggplant. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I think I've had eggplant every single way you can have it. Uh, you know, and, and like an escarole and um, mm. you know chicory. And people are like, like, what do you mean you eat chicory? It's, it's coffee. I'm like, no, it's actually a green. And then you can make it into coffee. But we ate that a lot and rice and like or whatever or so. My grandma, you know, whatever. She made the soup and yeah. so we ate. I mean, I don't know. That's the one thing I miss about um, California is just, uh, especially in the wintertime in New York, is just produce. Because, oh. I mean, it's just... It's when, I, when you go to the store and a bunch of kale is like four leaves, you're yeah. like, this is just not fair here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like 549, you're like, that's just messed up. <laughs> I mean, if the pricing here is off the charts. So, I mean, is that like... well, Plus like citrus, you know? I love California citrus. I'm, that's my. That's probably. If somebody asks me what my favorite ingredient is, it's probably California citrus. So a long time ago, when I first went to San Francisco, I realized that pink lemons were not just something in country time made up. It's real. And I went to the store. I'm like, I'm like, what's wrong with these lemons? These lemons look gross. They have like dark marks on them and everything. They're like, gee, those are pink lemons. And I go, I need those in my life, right? <laughs> so I get a pink lemon, and I realize pink lemons are amazing in cocktails. And they and. They are in season now in California, right? They're not obviously in season here. So I had my, my produce guy, I'm like, look, I need a case of pink lemons. I want to put it on my menu for the winter. And he goes, they're going to be expensive. I'm like, yeah, I realize what they're going to cost to get me, but I need them every year because of that, right? And he's like, yeah, but aren't you one of those people with the, it's not local, can't you? I'm like, all that goes out the rules. 
when it comes to my citrus. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll walk to work for a month. I need the pink lemons to come. Right. I love those. I'm jealous. I'm jealous of California fruits and vegetables, and it is it's stunning. So, what's up next for you? You talk about some get some things cooking, some pilot stuff. Where will where will someone see you? And they're gonna hear you here. But well, um. I have. I'm always doing lots of different projects, um, and I have. Um, last year, I got to do this. Uh, coming back to my art roots, I got to do this installation piece that I've been wanting to do for a long time, um, and it's called Crokenbush Samurai, and it's as cool as it sounds. Um, so, after I start, after I stopped playing soccer, I took up some martial arts and. Uh, form of fitness uh, based on Korean sword fighting and I did that I've done that for a while and then after I moved to New York seven years ago um, I didn't really do I mean my trainer would come out here once in a while from San Francisco and I would do some of her classes but then um, a couple of years ago I met a guy who is a master yado trainer which is a form uh, ancient form of Japanese sword fighting Wow. and um and so I was like, yeah, i got to take some classes with him. And the difference between what I did in California was we used wooden swords, and it's just a, it's more of a fitness routine using the swords, and I, I love it. It's definitely safer. Um, but the Yado class is actually using a real sword. Awesome. Oh, my and God. And you're never allowed in, in this um, form to look at the sword. It's very bad luck. So you're always very focused, because it's a warrior training, um, on your surroundings and being very... Zen in the moment, right, and just quiet and peaceful because you have to save all your energy for energy for the attack. So you have your sword and then you draw it out and you have to put it back in. You know, after you chopped off somebody's head with it, in theory, <laughs> um, and be able to clean it off and put it back without ever looking at it. So you have to practice that. You have like drawing this sharp sword out, never looking at it, wiping it across the back of your thumb, sticking it back in its case without sharp chopping your own hand off. <laughs> I was like, I'd it's lose very a, intense. I'd lose a thumb. How many, sure. how many scratches? Let me see your thumbs. No, um, no, because <laughs> you no. like are—it's the real deal. It's kind of like the clipping out of a bike, right? You're like, you just know. After, you're like, you can feel the cold steel, and you're like, oh, <laughs> gotta be cool. Crazy. Um, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful form. So I studied some of that, and then it turned out this guy, um, Sean Hawkins, is his name. He used to um, uh, do choreography on Broadway and. A lot of theater and stuff so perfect and I was gonna hire somebody else to be my performer while I make this croquembouche and I've always had this idea of this woman hacking it up with a samurai sword now I, a croquembouche is a, 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 a big tower of cream puffs dipped in caramelized sugar oh and I've yeah. made lots of them yes. at, at citizen cake back in the day and um, I love to do pulled sugar ribbons and curled stuff that pastry chefs don't even do anymore today Look beautiful like though yeah and sponge sugar around it yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I got I was I went to Soho House in the meatpacking, got to do this for about 75 people one night, and um, built a croquembouche, set it on a stage, studied my own choreography with Sean, and then um, I play I turned it into three acts. So there's the building of it and having a conversation with the guests while my hors d'oeuvres and cocktails were being passed, and then um, we move a piece of plexiglass in front of between me and the audience. It has a shelf built on the inside. My brother filmed this, so it's on my website. Oh, that's cool. And then, um, so I go backstage and I put on the beginner white gi, which is like the same in karate. 
and then um, Hakama pants, which are like the pleated, not isimiyaki, but pleated um, black pants that you wear in sword fighting. It's to hide your feet from shuffling around. Oh. And then um, put on a red ponytailed wig and Maiko, Japanese makeup, and um, come back out. And I, people didn't even know it was me because it's so not like my character of myself. <laughs> yeah. But so I play this very mimey, kind of like beginner schoolgirl kind of character. And I discover the croak and bush, and then I feel like I'm not worthy. And it's very much a self-portrait because it's my falling in love with pastry and sort of taking it on. Because then I notice that it has a sword sitting next to it, and it's sort of my calling. And uh, so I take the sword, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm not worthy. And I do a, like a stupid bow, and then um, meaning like I'm na- I'm naive. And then I am kind of marveling at it and realizing okay I really do have to take this on I do another bow I wake up and or I lift my head up and I'm like I'm a warrior now so then I go backstage put on a cat suit take off the wig Bowie makeup and spiky hair like yes. I have normally <laughs> and then play the prodigy and um, fire starter and strobe light red lights come on and I come out and do very opposite anime kind of looking gestures with the sword and it's whole routine of kicking around it and whacking it into the plexiglass <laughs> and then it splatters like a 3D Jackson Pollock down the plexiglass onto the shelf and everybody gets a fork afterwards and gets to eat it. Oh, that's, awesome. that's what dessert is supposed to be like. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> is that cool? That's amazing. Why would you say that on the road? I love that. <laughs> like, I like, love mine. <laughs> that would be incredible. What an incredible like... I love that. I want to do more and more installation kind of pieces because it's kind of how I've always thought I... You know, back in my Citizen Cake days, we would do a fundraising event. You know, we did a lot of AIDS work back then, a lot of human rights campaign work. Um, and we'd show up like chefs do and do a little plate of something. But I was like, that's not fun enough for us. We're Citizen Cake. We have to do something crazy. So um, I might have two handsome, hairless, buff guys in, like, sailor pants and black work boots, <laughs> Gautier-looking and pulling 25 pounds of salt, hot saltwater taffy back and forth that I had just made. Like, I love that. It's performance art pastry. Can you bring that back? No one does that. (laughs) (laughs) Say it, Louise. I see the face. So just say it. It's time, Gina. (laughs) Last call. We just got to New York. We have to have her on again. No. I say we just sit back and have some more cocktails. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thanks for letting me talk so much. Absolutely. (laughs) Of course. (laughs)